Hello, and welcome to the Smart Karma Podcast. I'm Michael Tegos. Every week on the podcast, we share a presentation and discussion from our webinar Wednesdays, when we sit down with Smart Karma Insight providers and selected experts from around the world to break down the key topics you care about in Asia's markets. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and so on. Thank you for being with us, and enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Webinar Wednesday by Smart Karma. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming insight provider Mark Chadwick, who will help us take a look at the big picture of Japan's small caps, including growth drivers and key trends in the Japanese market. Mark will also highlight uh, three stocks that bear keeping an eye on if you're looking into Japan. Mark has over 20 years of experience in equities and asset management in Asia and Japan. Most recently, he held positions in equity sales for Japanese and global investment banks in Tokyo and London, and he has developed a database for evaluating the board structures of listed Japanese companies using publicly available data and a scorecard of 21 key metrics grouped into three broad pillars, entrenchment, board independence, and shareholder alignment. The goal is to provide a framework to judge the state of governance in Japan and help investors understand each company's strengths and weaknesses. Mark, let me welcome you properly to the webinar, and I'm really curious to hear what you've got for us today. So please feel free to take it away. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for inviting me on to this webinar. Welcome to, to everyone that's, that's listening as well. So yeah, today, as you mentioned, I'll be talking more about the small caps rather than the corporate governance side. Uh, that's obviously another very interesting trend um, that's been happening a- alongside a lot of the, the things that I'm going to talk to you about today. But really, why small cap growth? Let me just give you a few numbers from last year. Base was up 456%. Free was up 213%. Rackus was up 139%. These are big moves for small cap Japanese growth stocks. But they're still relatively small in market cap terms compared to the well-known um, U.S. tech companies. Um, so really, there is a massive opportunity to find smaller companies in Japan that are still relatively undiscovered by global standards. And a large part of that is really because Japan um, is just way behind the rest of the world in terms of its digital transformation. Um, and we'll just talk about how and why that is. But now we are actually seeing an acceleration of, of, of those trends. And importantly, it's very much supported by the government. So I think it's a very, very exciting time to have a look at Japanese small cap growth stocks. Um, and hopefully we'll just highlight a few of, uh, of the interesting names for you later on in the presentation. Why, why are we here? Really, Japan lagged in terms of digital transformation. And a lot of it is down to the collapse of the bubble. This is all quite well known. I won't go into many details. But the lost decade really turned into a lost couple of decades. Companies became very, very cautious and defensive. Um, Japan lost a lot of ground economically, particularly to China. And that, that was really what the, the big problem was that, that needed to be turned around. And this is where Mr. Abe steps in into the picture. And, and around this time, around 2012, 2013, there really was a break from the past. And a big shift from the government to try and tip Japan more towards growth and innovation. It was a big shift in, in the political mindset. There was a lot of policy changes put in place to spur enterprise formation. 
increase access to funding and put in place legal framework for a lot of startups. So that all came in conjunction with, with changes to, you know, the, the more well-known changes to, to the governance code, etc. So over the last five or six years, what we have seen is that an ecosystem has been put into place for entrepreneurs and companies, smaller companies to thrive and grow. And to a large extent, that, that's actually worked quite well. So corporate profitability has improved, uh, returns on equity have improved, we've had higher shareholder returns in general, and, and that has led to a stronger Japanese economy. And it's that change in the economy, the confidence that that has brought about that has allowed the, the, the mindset to, to change and, and really provide a platform for innovation and opportunities for, for the smaller cap companies to actually thrive. And this chart really just shows how, how that worked. Um, this is just a chart of the Nikkei with the, with the red line going down was the, was the post bubble collapse. And the, the index really broke that trend around the time of Abe's start, um, around 2012, 2013. So it has worked. However, it is still really a, a period of, of transition. There is still an, a very much an old Japan and a new, new Japan. There's over 4,000 companies um, listed on the market, so that clearly there is a lot of rubbish as well. And you have to be very, very careful of, of what type of stock you're looking for. You don't just want to buy the Nikkei um, and hope for the best. But there are, as I say, a lot, a lot of gems with very little analyst coverage, and that's the kind of stock that we're, we're looking for. Just to highlight that as well, this chart shows the, the mother stock market, which is really the startup kind of market, probably equivalent to, to NASDAQ. Um, and you can see how that outperformed the, the broader topics index um, last year quite substantially. So I think the market is really just starting to, to recognize some of these winners um, and the, the different sorts of business models that are doing it quite well. So what, what, what should we be looking for? Where should we be looking to, to find stocks in, in Japan? I think this is probably the most important slide in the deck, really. So I'll spend a little bit more time here. But there's three key catalysts, I, I think, driving um, this shift to, to a, a newer economy. The first is just the number of mega trends. And the, these are the global trends that are also impacting Japan in terms of digital transformation, the next generation internet, etc. The second thing, as I mentioned before, is, is the political willpower. Um, that's finally there. Um, the Japanese government is also trying to transform itself. Um, they've set up a, a digital ministry to make a shift within government to actually put a lot of their own processes more digital now. So there's political willpower. And the third thing that's been impacting the market really is COVID. And that's been a huge accelerant in showing Japanese companies and Japanese politicians how badly prepared they've been and how, how far behind they were in terms of where they needed to be for things like remote working and, and digital signatures, etc. So those are really the, the three key catalysts that are pushing us towards this new sort of Japan. Now, I think digital transformation, there's various sub-segments to that that I've put underneath there that you can see. It, that's, I think, the, the biggest near-term opportunity. And again, because Japan has lost those, those decades, it is quite a long way behind the US and other developed economies. 
and that is is I, I think where you'll see probably the biggest near term opportunities. If if we just think of a, a couple of stocks, just as an example, Wealth Navi, which is a robo advisor that was listed um, in Japan last year in 2020, actually had a a, a great IPO debut. It was up about 120 percent on debut. That is around 10 years behind Wealthfront in the US. Wealthfront in the US was was founded in 2008 doing the same sort of job. So again, you can see that that gap that exists. So these business models are, are coming through in Japan now that they're about a decade late. But that, as an investor, I think gives you an enormous opportunity because you can see very clearly that there's a, a roadmap. You can see that with companies like Base in Japan, which which is about seven or eight years behind Shopify in in the US as well. So there's a number of different examples of that where there's very similar companies that are now just starting to get going in Japan um, that have got well trodden roadmaps for growth. Probably the the next most interesting thing will be the the next generation internet driven by the sh- the shift to the cloud and artificial intelligence, blockchain, IoT, etc. That's been a huge issue for Japan um, over the past number of years. There's been a huge aversion to put anything in the cloud in Japan. There's a lot of fear around security and data, but that's finally as well being forced upon them to to change. Um, So companies are having to ditch their legacy tech now, and that shift is just beginning. Um, And we'll talk about um, a couple of the AI stocks as well later. Autonomous tech um, is an area where Japan has led the world in, in terms of industrial robots and factory automation. Um, so hopefully there should be some opportunities there as well. And, and carbon neutral, um, obviously Japan relied very heavily on, on nuclear power. That is changing and the, the energy mix in Japan, like the rest of the world, will, will have to become much, much cleaner and, and there'll be opportunities for stops there as well. Um, so what, what, what do we look for in terms of, of trying to find these small cap gems? First and foremost, I, th- I think it's exposure to one of the mega trends that I, I've just mentioned. And secondly, is it actually growing quite quickly at the moment? We want, we want to see there's some proof of concept behind the, these companies. But basically, we're trying to find, is there a big market? Is there a moat? Is there any competitive advantage? And is management very good? So just in simple terms, the three M's of market, moat, and management um, are what we are looking for on these smaller Japanese companies. So I'll just highlight three companies that we find quite interesting at the moment. They're a little bit different, but just to give you a, a flavor of, of some of the uh, of the kind of stocks that, that are exposed to these themes. So the first one is, is money forward. Which is a cloud-based accounting software company. It's, it's very similar to Intuit in the US or, or Zero in, in Australia, um, and obviously it's very much geared in, into enterprise SaaS and, and digital transformation. Now, it, it, is it a big market? Well, it, it's just starting, but there is a huge potential market opportunity here. There's no foreign players involved in the market. We think it's around a two billion dollar market. Um, and if you compare that to the current sales that are around $20 million. So this is a company that can grow at 50% year over year for quite a number of years before they've exploited that opportunity. There is a moat, as with most, most SaaS companies, there's high switching costs 
if you're a first mover in, into getting your product into a company, it becomes very, very difficult for the companies to change providers. It just becomes such a, a hassle and a burden when people have already learned the system. And you can see this already with, with Money Forward and, and Free as well, which is a close competitor. They both have very, very low churn. So they get in the door um, and then they start to add new products and functionality and customers just stay with them and start spending more and more money along the way. Management, again, and it, this is different from the typical Japanese salaryman. It's founded by a Wharton MBA. He's moved around to different companies as well, Sony, Monarch Securities, for example. And unlike most Japanese management, again, he, he's very well aligned with shareholders. He's got a big stake in the company. And that is something that if, if we're looking to play the growth in this company over the next five to 10 years, you want someone that's clearly well aligned with shareholders. Another stock that we think is really interesting, perhaps one a little bit more for the future, is Neural Pocket. Um, this is an AI company. And they have a lot of IP in, in image recognition software. It's quite similar to a couple of Chinese companies, uh, SenseTime and MegV. Um, if you're familiar with those. Again, this this company has a huge market potential, particularly within smart cities, which are just really starting to, to get developed. Um, and this it's all about turning analog spaces in, into digital maps and digital spaces. Um, it can include things like car parking and crowd safety, etc. So it's potentially a trillion-dollar market according to many different surveys obviously not just in japan that that's a global number it's difficult for us to estimate how big this market could be in japan but clearly this company has the ip in the right sort of area and is already tying up with larger japanese companies like softbank like some of the real estate companies to put this ai software into practical use already again management i think is key Shigematsu-san is ex-McKinsey, head of their AI team. And I think importantly for this company, the advisor on the board is a gentleman called Matsuo-san, who's a Tokyo University guru. He is probably the preeminent person on AI in Japan. Um, he also sits on the board of SoftBank, for example. So he's very, very well thought of within Japan. And his Tokyo University lab is generating a number of different startups around AI. So PK Shah is another company that has been born out of this lab. The third company I wanted to highlight is just something a little bit different. It's not as techy, I guess, as the others. And it's been around a while longer as well. But it's very much, again, geared into the whole idea of transforming the Japanese economy. This is just a trading company. Um, a wholesale company of which there are 200 listed on the Japanese stock exchange. But this is the 13th biggest and it really boils down to, to focusing on a particular niche. And in this case, it's scientific and medical equipment. And they're just destroying the old way of doing business in Japan. They're very similar to a Monotaro, which is also a big Japanese company or, or an Amazon. And they're providing a very, very sophisticated distribution system that, that's manned essentially 100% by robots, and it just destroys the competition in terms of getting product to market. So again, that there is a huge market opportunity for this company still, despite the fact that it's, it's been around and done very well already. There's about a $4 billion 
dollar wholesale market just for scientific equipment and, and medical equipment. And this company's sales are just under a, a billion dollars at the moment. So we think over the next three to five years, there's ample room for this company to grow. Another reason to, to like this company, again, is, is very strong management. It's a family-run business, and the family still owns a significant amount of the stock, showing, again, that they're, they're very, very aligned with you as a long-term shareholder. So those those are three of the companies that we would just highlight as examples of, of companies that are geared into this new economy theme. We've done, if you subscribe to Smart Karma, we've done a number of, of these reports um, on various companies. You can see there's, there's those listed there on, on the left-hand side. So um, if you would have any questions, please let me know. Thank you very much for that, Mark. As Mark said, a lot of uh, his previous work on these companies is on Smart Karma, and you should definitely check it out or get in touch with us if you're not a subscriber. Our very capable sales team can help you out. So, Mark, I guess you made a really good case for the small cap market in Japan. But what are some of the challenges there? What would be some of the drawbacks of investing in in such small cap companies? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, I think I mean it, it is a very very interesting part of the market to have a look at. I think. If I was going to say what what are the the, the issues really I, I guess are not um, just small cap issues in Japan but it, it boils down to to overall market issues and there is fairly weak disclosure I would say certainly um, English language publications can can be an issue with some of the companies the just the general level of IR can be an issue. I think some of the smaller companies are actually making quite a, a decent effort now of putting out English language material. Certainly, Money Forward, Neural Pocket have, have good slide decks that they show. Um, so that, you know, they can actually be better than some of the, the larger cap traditional companies in many respects. But overall, I think there's around 4,000 companies listed in, in Japan. And, and analyst coverage is obviously very, very sparse at the lower end of that. They tend to concentrate on the big 200 names or so. So finding research on these companies is quite difficult. And clearly going around and visiting them all is quite a challenge as well. So that's why I think it's important to have that process of, of focusing on, on those particular areas that I highlighted and, and looking for exposure to those mega trends. And looking for the growth as a, as a sign that, that something good is happening in those small caps. I see. There's a couple of questions from the audience that I want to address. And one of them is a broader picture one, and the other concerns money forward specifically. So, yep. so maybe uh, I'll take the broader picture one first, and then we can go into the specifics. So, do you see any catalysts such as policies uh, in the near future that will unlock the valuations for the companies that you mentioned? Policies from the government, do you know? Uh, I think that's what the question is going for, yes. Well, the general outlook, as I, as I mentioned, is that the government is, is very much promoting digital transformation. That much is, is, is for sure. Are there any specific policies 
I, I, I mean, Suga, I, I think, is continuing with the, the policies that Abe put in, into place. Um, this year, we'll get a, another iteration of, of the corporate governance code, for example, which will put much more pressure on companies to have independent boards, um, etc. And the continued pressure from from shareholders and and policymakers to promote change within corporate Japan. I think that that much is very clear, and I, I don't think that will change. Um, mm-hmm. Suga, in particular, it has a number of policies that are again trying to promote. I guess uh, a more level playing field. He's trying to lower the mobile phone, the four or five G rate plans that consumers have to pay. So he he's very focused on trying to cut a lot of the red tape as as Abe was, and obviously he was part of the Abe cabinet, so that continues. So I think that the policy environment remains very supportive, and then really it, it's up to investors to I think <laughs> think try and discover these companies. I mean, as, yeah, I mean, we'll talk about money forward probably next, but, you know, the, the valuation at 18 times EV to revenue, it's pretty pricey. It's not as if they're, they're completely undervalued companies. Um, so I think they've started to be recognized. Um, but clearly what we're arguing is that there's, there's a, a much greater runway going forward. So those valuations will obviously come down quite sharply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's actually a very good segue into the money forward question, um, which is, are there any key differences that you can highlight between money forward and zero that an investor that compares the two should be aware of? The attendee asking the question, uh, is an LT holder in zero and is a prospective holder of, of money forward? And as a follow-up, he asks, why is the valuation so different to free? For example, which uh, money you mentioned yeah. the money forward is yeah. 18, uh, 18x, free is 43x. Yeah. Um, so, what do you think uh, on that? As about, yeah. Um, so, I think there's no real big difference between money forward and zero in, t- in terms of the cloud based accounting software. I mean, th- this is one of the reasons I think I, I like this company is that, that clearly. Free and Money Forward have, have both looked at overseas businesses that have been successful. So they they clearly learned from India. They clearly learned from Zero. And there's a there's there's a very blue ocean in Japan. There's a huge market opportunity for them to execute on that very very same business model within Japan. So the product itself, I think, is very similar. Now, obviously, the regulations within each company country, sorry. Are different, both money forward and, and free use um, accountants largely to, to sell this product to small businesses. So to that extent, you know, we think it's going to be very, very difficult for a, a foreign company to enter into the market um, because there clearly are language barriers. There's a barriers in terms of getting the product into the accounting networks for them to sell the product. So. But uh, yeah, I think at the, at the base, the, the the core business is very very similar. I suppose one one small difference is that that zero has got the global market to go after, and I don't think money forward or free will really be looking to expand much out of out of Japan. I'd be very surprised. But Japan is is the third or fourth largest economy in the world. Probably they don't really need to. They should have ample room to grow over the next ten years, and. Just looking back at where zero used to be 10 years ago, 
I think the revenues were also around the $100 million mark, so similar to where Money Forward is now. So I, I think if you look at zero 10 years ago and you look at free today, that's the way to compare these businesses. Now, in terms of the, the valuation the differences between free and money forward, I mean, that's, that's a good question. That's a question that comes up quite a lot. Clearly, free is the market darling. There's a very charismatic CEO and that stock is at the moment, I think, branded as the winner in the space. Now, money forward, I, I've just talked about the cloud accounting business, but there is also a big money forward consumer side of the business, which at the moment is really, which is really freemium software, I guess. But that is a big potential market for this company as well. That, and that, that's a, a, a chief difference between this company and, and free. But at the moment, it's detracting from, from gross margins. So money forward will have lower gross margins than free at the moment. And that's largely because of the costs that are going into supporting the, the consumer side of the business. But overall, if we look at, say, over the next five to 10 years, you know, I, I expect both companies to do very, very well. But I think money forward may have potential other areas to, to grow into that, that free doesn't. So Money Forward has that brand name amongst consumers in terms of personal financial management that free doesn't. So um, that could be an interesting area. And I think they're both doing things like setting up venture capital operations as well. So this business that I've described with a potential market opportunity of $2 billion actually could be multiples higher than that. So I think that, again, these valuations, they seem very, very expensive at the moment at 20 times, 40 times revenues. But really, we're just at the very start of this growth. Thank you very much for that. I want to touch on something that you mentioned just now regarding Money Forwards and Free's uh, basically domestic market growth. And I wonder, when it comes to Japanese small caps, TAM, are they mostly focused on their domestic market as well? And do they have room to grow there? Or are there some that uh, have more... Kind of international uh, market aspirations, and and how many are there? I, I think most of the most of the domestic focus, to be honest. I mean, it probably depends on on each individual segment, um, but I, I think the, we, the, these businesses are, are so new, they're so young that you know they've literally come to market at a, a very very small scale. Mm-hmm. They would have been in a VC house if they were a US business. So at the moment, mm-hmm. I, I think it's very much just focusing on the Japanese domestic market. But if you take, you know, the, the, the typical Japanese company at the moment that's preparing their accounts, they're either doing it on some legacy system that was sold to them 20 years ago, or or if they're a very small business, they're doing it on Excel. So there is a, there is a huge opportunity to shift these three and a half million SMEs in Japan over to a cloud-based system. That's clear. So I, I don't think it's like Zero that needed to get out of, of New Zealand, needed to, to expand out of Australia to, to go into, say, Europe. For, for money forward and free, and you could say the same about a lot of, say, a lot of the business enterprise software companies, there is a huge wide open market in Japan. That is not yet in the cloud. And I think that's where a lot of the opportunities will be. Got it. That makes sense. So why should an investor, when they're considering uh, these companies, and you mentioned, for example, how 
neural pocket is similar to, for example, Megvi in China. So why should investors look at these companies and not similar companies in China or the U.S. when it comes to these uh, high-tech ventures? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think the, the, these companies, the business models are, are quite similar for sure. You know, if your mandate is to invest in China, then then obviously you look at Sense Time. If the mandate's in in Japan, you you look at something like Neural Pockets. But clearly, I, I think for me, the the advantage of Japan is that it's a less efficient market where we're very much at the start of the, of these trends, um, and there's less knowledge about that. And given that there's much less analyst coverage in Japan than, than typically you would find in the US or, or China. I, I think these stocks are, are very under under covered and, and obviously un, under-owned as well. There's very little, for Neural Pocket, I've, I've just had a look, there's hardly any institutional ownership in that stock yet. Um, money forward, there is a, a little bit more um, and free as well, but they're, they're still relatively young companies in their histories. Like I said, if these companies were in the US, they, they would still be part of some VC portfolio. So they're coming to market very quickly and you know, analysts are basically struggling to keep on top of, of all, all the new companies that are getting IPO in, in, in Japan. So yeah, I think you've got here very good regulations, reasonably good compliance, good governance. So that's why I think it should be a key part of what people are looking at. Uh, there's another, another audience question, and I'm not sure if you have, but uh, the question is, have you ever looked at Kobe Busan in terms of it being a young company with a transformative retail offering and efficient supply chains? Have, do you have any visibility on that one? It's not something I, I've looked at, to be perfectly honest with you. But yeah, it's clearly performed very, very well in the market, and I think I think there's a lot of opportunity for, for companies to do something that's slightly different from the run of the mill in Japan, take market share. So whether that, that's these sort of new economy stocks or whether it, it's old economy stocks, um, there's clearly a lot of sleepy, poorly run companies as well. So if you can find one that has good management, then, then there's clearly opportunities to take quite a lot of market share quite quickly. So, but that's, yeah, that's not a stock that I've, I've personally written on or, or done any work on, I'm afraid. Sure. So a question coming through the chat, both money forward and as one had a re-rating in 2020 after basically a flatline price trend before. How can one assess that these are not red stocks and are so tiny structural for New Japan? Is the question. They're not, what kind of stocks, sorry? Red. Uh, sorry, fad stocks. Fad. Okay. Um, <laughs> my, my eyes are not what they used to be. <laughs> We're all getting a little bit older. Um, so they, no, I, I, I think the, the key thing is, is to go back to this chart. Are these companies involved in these major mega trends? Um, and these are, these are not just Japanese trends. These, these are global trends. Um, but these are the most important, I think, for, for Japan. And clearly, does money forward have exposure to a, to a mega trend? Yes. It, it's helping Japanese businesses to, to do their accounts much more quickly and much more cheaply. That's digital transformation. Is it growing quickly? Yes. It's growing at above 50 or 60% at the moment. So these are structural changes within the economy. And these companies are clearly 
um, and benefiting from that. I think you can see it on, on the on the revenue chart there how how quickly that business is growing. Um, so I don't think that's a fad. I mean, sure, uh, market valuations have expanded, and and maybe it's maybe it's worth ten times, not twenty times. But if we're thinking of holding that business for the next five years, which I, you know for these sort of small caps, I think we should be, then they will grow into those valuations. I think. Just as a maybe a, a last question, as we're coming towards the time. You briefly mentioned uh, policies before after a, a, a question from an attendee. And I wonder, Prime Minister Suga seems quite busy right now with COVID-related challenges. Um, and the government has does seem like it's being strained by that. So is there an impact on those business-friendly policies, do you think? Like, do you, do you think that they'll take longer to implement now? And what will be the impact on small caps? Yeah, the short answer is no, there won't be an impact. I mean, obviously, obviously COVID has, has thrown a, a spanner in the works for a lot, for a lot of governments and, and everyone was trying to figure out a, a way to solve that particular problem. But I think the, the, the policies are all largely in, in place, um, in terms of supporting smaller businesses. There's a couple of, of, of sort of new policies and, and one is, is the drive to get more foreigners into Japan. So, the idea of, of Tokyo being a financial capital, that has been a policy that's been kicked around many times before, but it's come up again. And I think it's come up again because apart from what's happening in, in Hong Kong, Japan needs more foreigners here. And it sees this as an easy way to get foreigners here. And I think to use it really as a, as a thin end, thin end of a, of a wedge to cut regulation, to cut red tape. So. To ease visa restrictions for financial professionals, to, to make changes to the tax system. These are all things that you can do under the cover, I think, of, of, of Tokyo as a financial capital. But the reality is that it'll be a much broader thing going forward that Japan has a demographic problem and needs foreigners. So I think a lot of the changes um, that they're talking about now are really to address that for the longer term. So Suga is, is definitely behind tr- still trying to transform the economy. I mean, we, we, you know, he, he's literally got one of his key men now as head of the digital transformation agency within the government. So obviously a lot of the procedures for dealing with the government are very, very paper based. Um, so if you want to change your, your address, you have to go to the local ward office and fill out three forms and then take it somewhere else. It's a hassle. And, and so the policy are clearly in place to, to get everything online into the cloud and make it easier for everybody. Um, so these policies are, are continuing. And I think COVID again has, has really shown the government that they're a long way behind and therefore <laughs> we need to change. So that's, that's the answer that the, the government is very much a part of this and the, and the companies that can benefit from this mostly i think are the smaller cap companies that are 100% engaged in in these sort of uh, big trends got it so that's just about all the time that we have today thank you very much uh mark for uh lending us your time and thank you everyone for being with us if you have any more questions uh do feel free to email us at research at smartcomma.com mark Thank you very much once again. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Michael. And thanks, everyone, for listening. That's it for this week. 
If you liked this episode, please share it with your networks and follow Smart Karma on your social media. We're Smart Karma everywhere. And of course, don't forget to visit smartkarma.com for truly independent, differentiated investment research. As always, thank you very much for listening, and see you at the next one.